a quote guy. I love quotes. I like leadership quotes, and I put those up in my office, and I send those to people. I just love a good, a good quote. And here's some of my favorite quotes as it relates to this idea that we are better together. Clint Blanchard said this, none of us are as smart as all of us. I like that quote. Michael Jordan said this. He didn't just say, um, you know, the ceiling is the roof. He also said that talent wins games, but teamwork wins championships. And, and, and we learned that in the NBA Finals this, this year, didn't we? You know, one person can't win it all, no matter how great that one person is, even if it's LeBron, right? It takes team, takes teamwork to be able to do that. Helen Keller actually said this, alone we can do so little. But together, we can do so much. Mike Krasuski, not to be confused with Mike Wazowski from Monsters, Inc., said to me, sorry, that's funny. To me, teamwork is the beauty of our sport because where you have five acting as one, you actually become selfless. Now, this is next quote is my favorite because I'm, I'm a Wolfpack fan, and so I really like this. Douglas Valentine says, for the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. There you go. But now there are some quotes that I don't like as it relates to teamwork. I remember when I played sports back in the day, my coach would get us together and, and he would yell and he would say, you were only as strong as the team, right? You were only as strong as the team around you. But then he would always kind of add this little quote with it, all right? Then he would say, and a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? And I never liked that because he would always point out when you were being the weakest link, you know what I mean? And so it, it was, it was kind of deflating, you know, it, we... we we are a team, and, and together we are stronger than we can be on our own, but we are only as strong as the weakest part of our team. And nobody wants to think that you are the weakest link, yet all of us at times, we feel that way. Sometimes we're made to feel that way. My son is, um, is 15, and, and almost 15, and he and his buddies like to play this game called Fortnite. Anybody ever played this game before? We got some people played Fortnite before. And, and I, I like this game. If you know what this is, you just imagine um, an island. It's kind of like Hunger Games. They drop off like 100 people. It's a video game, not real. And they drop the people off, and you just have to have battle to the finish, right? And, and you can either play as an individual. You can do it in, in teams of two or, or teams of four. And so I thought this would be a really good opportunity for me to connect with my son and some of his friends. And, and also I wanted to know what the game was about and make sure he wasn't getting recruited to be in some militia somewhere. And so I thought I need to figure out what this game is because it's becoming a cultural phenomenon. I mean, it's just insane how many people around the world play this game. And so I thought I'm going to learn how to play it. And then I'm going to impress my son because I'm pretty good at video games. And then he's going to be so impressed that he's going to ask me to be on his squad and I'm going to be able to play with his friends. I was pretty excited about this. So I downloaded my phone, my iPad, when he was at, 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 at school or at practice, you know, I'd jump on, I'd, I'd play and try to get really good. Finally, I let him know that I was playing this game. And so he played with me uh, one time, just the two of us. And, and then I said, okay, do you think that it would be okay if I play with your friends? Like all, like I just get in your squad? And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's no, no, no. That is, that is not happening. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm getting pretty good. Like I'm getting better. He was like, no, 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 dad. dad. And apparently when your 14-year-old son says your game is trash, it's not a compliment. So if you ever hear that from a kid, it's not a compliment. In fact, it's disrespectful. And now he's grounded now that I think about it. 
But it's like when I, when I heard that, I was working so hard, you know, and, and I felt like I was doing really well. And, and to find out that I was not playing uh, on his team, I, I went back to middle school. I'm just going to be honest. And, and I realized that none of us like being overlooked and none of us like being passed up or tossed aside. Yet so many of us feel that way all the time. Some of you have grown up your entire life feeling overlooked and passed up and tossed aside. Maybe you had a coach who told you you weren't good enough to make the team or a teacher who told you you weren't good enough to be able to do that thing that you wanted to do in your future. Maybe you had an employer tell you that you're not good enough or qualified enough to get a job. Or maybe you had a supervisor who said you're not, you're not effective enough to get that promotion. Maybe you even had a spouse who told you, you just, they didn't love you anymore. And so for whatever it is, you have something in your life where you just don't feel like that, that you measure up. You've been overlooked, passed up, and you've been tossed aside. So when we've been doing this series, and I stand on this stage and kind of beat the war drum and say, guys, we're better together. Like we can do something for our city, we can do something for our state and our world. Like together when we come together as the body of Christ, that we can accomplish something absolutely amazing. There's something inside of you that says, whoa, 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 not, not me. Like that doesn't include me. Like these people are better together, but your entire life, you've been overlooked, you've been passed up, you've been tossed aside. And somehow this idea of being better together, we can't be better together if that includes you. Because after all, you know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, and you feel like you're the weakest link. See, you hear that stuff enough times, you begin to believe it. But when, when you've been told you're worthless, and you've been told you're ineffective, and you've been told you're unlovable, you believe that long enough, you, you, you listen to it long enough, you start to believe it, you start to take it to heart. Just this week, like two very well-known celebrities um, gave up on the gift of life. They took their life. And, and, and maybe you're here and, and you would be honest enough to say, you know, there are times in my life, there are times that, that I, I process things and, and I begin to think, man, maybe the world would be better without, without me. Maybe my family would be better off if I just weren't here. And I just need you to know that's a lie of the enemy. And, and, and the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. He's doing everything he can to take you out. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And so if you hear, hey, the world would be better off without you. It's a lie of the enemy. We are better together because of you. You have a purpose and you have a plan and it is God given. And if you're here today, you're watching online and you've ever felt overlooked, you've felt passed up, you felt tossed aside, today is going to be very important for you. Now I want you to look with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, I love this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17. In fact, it's probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And, and I've probably preached on this topic more than I have any other topic in, in, in all of my mystery. Maybe not this topic, but this chapter, because it's David and Goliath. I love the story. I love this underdog, this young teenage boy who steps up to fight a giant named Goliath and, and through the power of God actually wins. It's this beautiful story. And maybe you didn't grow up in church or maybe you're not very familiar with this story. Maybe you're familiar with the characters of the story, but not really the details of the story. I'd encourage you to go back and read it. I'm not going to go through the entire story, but I'll give you the cliff note version. So David's a teenager. He's not a warrior. He's a shepherd boy, so he's normally tending sheep. 
and his brothers are warriors and they're in this army and, and it's the nation of Israel, God's people, God's chosen army against the Philistines. So they're kind of the bad guys, the antagonists of the story. And, and the chief antagonist is this guy named Goliath and he's this giant warrior who every day comes out and he taunts the Israelite army. And, and it's gotten to a point in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that the Israelite army, even though they have God on their side, are literally paralyzed by their fear. And he had taken the stakes to a whole another place because basically what he said was, just choose one man. Just choose one warrior. We don't even have to have a, a battle here today with everybody against everybody. Just send your best fighter against me. And whoever wins this battle wins the battle for the entire nation. And the losing side has to surrender and become slaves to the other side. And so nobody wanted those odds. Nobody wanted to carry that burden. No one thought they had a chance against Goliath. Well, we know the story, right? We know the end of the story. We know that little David steps out and he says, hey, if nobody else will fight him, I'll fight him. So he steps out literally with a slingshot and some rocks. So the giant Goliath looks at, at David and he says, you, you come out to me with, 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 with a slingshot and some rocks. I'll feed your carcass to the birds. And here's my favorite part of the story. When David in all of his boldness just squares his shoulders back and he looks at that giant and he says, you come to me with a spear and a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. He looked at the giant, he put a stone in that sling and he was a good shot with a sling, but not that good. He put it in the right spot. God put it in the right spot and that giant fell he took his own sword from the giant and he took his head off and the bible says he carried around his head like a trophy and the very army that was running in fear the Israelite army was running in fear now when they heard that the giant was dead the bible says they stopped they turned in their tracks and they began to pursue the philistine army what happened one person fully committed to god and inspired an entire nation to be who god called them to be we're better together but now it's very easy to bypass these verses of scripture that I want to share with you because I've hit this story from every angle that you could possibly think of except this one. And I found these two great verses of scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 28 and 29. It's so easy to just pass over these verses. It says, but when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. So David comes up and he hears this giant shouting out these, these taunts and, and nobody's wanting to step up. So what did David do? He started asking questions. And he started saying things like, so who's going to fight this guy? Who's going to stand against this guy who's defying the nation of God? Who's going to let that happen? Like, who's going to do something about that? And then he started asking questions like, well, what do you get if you stand up and fight and you actually win? What's the king going to do for you? Because there were some spoils of war. And even the questions, Eliab heard the voice of his brother and lashed out at him. Look what it says. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What, are the, where, what about those few sheep that you're supposed to be taking care of? He was talking down to him, right? He was, he, was, he was pushing him out. And he says, I know about your pride and I know about your deceit. You just want to see the battle. And so David replies, what have I done now? I was only asking a question. And he goes on. That's all. Just those two verses. That's all you get. It's that one little part of a dialogue. And it would be so easy to skip over that and think that that's very insignificant, but it's not. And if you know the entire story, you realize that that dialogue is not very surprising. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, one chapter before, what you find is the prophet Samuel is spoken to by God and it's time to anoint the next king of Israel. 
And so God speaks to the prophet Samuel and says, we're going to anoint the next king of Israel. What you're going to do is go to the house of Jesse. And Jesse has all of these sons, and one of his sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel shows up to Jesse's house for the king's selection party, right? And he's got all of his brothers lined up from the oldest to the youngest, except one person's not present. It's David. David's the youngest. He wasn't even thought of enough to be invited to this party. He's out tending the sheep because he's the little guy. He's the youngest, the most insignificant, and he's out tending the sheep while everybody else is at the king's selection party. And what you find when, when they arrive, Samuel took one look at Eliab. There's that name again. One look at Eliab, David's oldest brother, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Why would Samuel think that? Because he's the biggest. He's the boldest. He's the brightest. He's the best. Surely this is the person that God would put his hand on and say, this is the next king for my people. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Now, let's just stop for a second. All right, let's put it on pause. Do we believe that what this is saying is that God is rejecting Eliab as a person? or that his life doesn't matter, that, that he's insignificant, or that he doesn't have a purpose or a plan. Absolutely not. He's just not been selected as king. God is rejecting him as the choice for the king because he had an assignment for somebody else. And he says, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. Yeah, yeah, you're looking at the outward appearance. He's the obvious choice. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so for Eliab, the system seemed upside down. This was his assignment. This was what he thought he was going to be chosen to do. And instead, his youngest brother was, the kid who wasn't even in the lineup. And now that same kid who took his place as king is now on the battlefield, and the very sound of his voice irritated Eliab. Has that ever happened to you? Is there somebody that just gets on your nerves so much that it doesn't even matter what they say? Just the sound of that shrilling little voice, you know what I'm saying? Just kills you. Maybe it's a coworker. And every time you're in a meeting, they open their mouth, you go, there they go again. They could say the most genius thing, right? But just the sound of their voice makes you want to stab yourself with a fork. Like it's just, man, maybe it's a brother, maybe it's a sister. And that's kind of how it was. Like, all David did was ask a question and then immediately Eliab goes to the offensive and begins to reject him. Why does that happen? Because Eliab, the one chapter earlier, on the day he thought he was going to be appointed as the next king, was rejected himself. Now, one of my favorite authors, John Maxwell, he says this, that hurting people hurt people, right? When you've been hurt, when, when you've been abused, you hurt and abuse other people. Hurting people hurt people. So I, I would just have to take that a step further and say rejected people reject people. So Eliab in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he felt that pain of rejection. So now what is he doing? He's taking that rejection out on somebody else and he's rejecting somebody. He's pushing people away. And I think it's unique that, that he wasn't really rejected by his brother. He was rejected by Samuel but he's taking it out on his brother. And see, I think we do that all the time. We get rejected in our jobs. We get rejected out doing things that we're trying to accomplish and we're chasing dreams and it's not happening. And we take home and we dump on our families and we go home and we reject the people around us and we take it out on the people that love us the most. But none of us like feeling like we aren't good enough. 
or that we're smart enough or that we're not wanted enough. And as much as we don't like it and we wish it weren't so, the reality is the opinions of other people matter a lot to us. And I know there are people, and you might be one of those people, you'd say, man, I don't care what nobody thinks about me. I, I would argue that at the core of your heart, you don't believe that. Like things that people think about us do matter. And a word of rejection, even something small that wasn't even aimed to hurt us, like it stings and it sticks. And this tiny seed of rejection takes root in our heart and it wreaks havoc for seasons to come. And when we allow that to remain, what happens is, is we forget that God miraculously created us for a purpose and a plan. And so on a, on, a, on a king selection day, you know, in his backyard, here is Eliab and he experiences this pain of rejection. And now here we are and, 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 and we fast forward to a battlefield, like all of a sudden Eliab just launches out at David just because he hears the sound of his voice. Why? Because he's holding on to this rejection. He didn't leave it on King's Selection Day. He brought that rejection and that pain and that bitterness with him. And now it's impacting his present and it's impacting his future. And we say it all the time like this, don't let the pain of your past ruin your future. Your past, it's your history, but your future is your destiny. And if you aren't careful, you'll allow those pains of rejection to follow you and you'll pull it along like baggage and you'll, you'll carry it into every relationship. You'll carry it into every job situation. You'll carry it into every scenario. And if you aren't careful, it will destroy the present that you're trying to live in. That fear of, of rejection, rejection. And some of us in the room are struggling with it. And what happens is you'll lose sight of the fact that God does have a plan for you. And one of the things that we do that, 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 that takes us off track and, 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 and off course is we pay so much attention to what everybody else is doing. We get so consumed by somebody else's race and we get so consumed by somebody else's success that we can't live in the purpose and plan that God's called us to live in because we're consumed by that. We've said it before in this setting, but Robert Madu said this. I love this quote. He said that our comparison, that game of comparison, that competition that we feel in our heart, that is the cancer to our contentment. It's hard for us to be content with the assignment that God has called us to when we're constantly comparing ourselves to somebody else. And if you want to receive victory and experience victory over this giant of rejection, you have to change the way that you see yourself and the way you see your circumstance. You have to see yourself and your circumstance the way that God sees you. And here's what God sees in you. He says that you were loved and you are accepted just the way you are. Now, some of us find that hard to believe, but that's what his word says, that you were loved and accepted just the way you are. And the great thing about it is, is, is we don't have to do anything to earn that. We don't have to do anything to attain that. Like we, we just have to accept the fact that, that God loves us. And I love what 1 John four nineteen says that we love each other in these relationships where we are better together. We love each other because God loved us first. That's what it says. Before you did anything right, God already loves you. My family, we get in this little game that we play. 
where, where we'll say, you know, I love you. And, and then somebody will say, well, I love you more, you know, and you kind of do the, I love you more. Somebody told me in the last service, that game will get you in trouble, right? You say, I love you more, and that person says, I love you most. And then the other person says, I love you more than most. You could take that a couple of different ways, right? I love you more than most people love you. But, but, but here's the one thing I always have on my kids. No matter how much they say, Dad, I love you more. I can always look at my kids and say, but I loved you first. I loved you first. Before, before you ever had the capacity and understanding of how to love somebody, I already loved you. I loved you first. So God looks at us and says, I loved you first. Just as you are, I absolutely love you. And we often look at the race that other people are running and we wonder why in the world that hasn't happened to us. But here's what I want you to see. Just because you didn't get the job, just because you didn't get the promotion, just because you don't have that relationship that you hoped for, doesn't mean that God doesn't have something amazing for you. He has something amazing for you. Here's what I want you to see. And I love this. Let's go back to Eliab. Okay. Eliab wasn't chosen as king. And he wasn't chosen to fight the battle against Goliath. Those were David's assignments. But just because those weren't Eliab's assignments doesn't mean that God didn't have a plan for Eliab. He still had a plan for Eliab. He still had a purpose for Eliab. It was just different than what he had called David to. So when you look at all of those people in your life and you wonder why that's not happening for you and why you're not seeing that happening in your life, what you have to do is stop and recognize what you see in their life, that's their race. That's what God's called them to. But it doesn't mean that God's not called you to a race and that God hasn't called you to an assignment. He does, even if you haven't figured out what it is yet. I was talking to a friend a few days ago and um, we were um, talking about this need that had come up. And I felt responsible, like I needed to do something to, to jump in and like fix this situation, right? Some of us guys were fix-it guys, and, and I just wanted to jump in and fix it. And, and, and he, he stopped me, and he cautioned. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say this to me before. But he said, hold on before you rush ahead, Pastor. Here's what you got to understand. Maybe God's put a burden on your heart to pray about it, and that's all. Maybe he's not called you to do anything else in this situation, but just pray. Maybe that's the only thing that God's called you to do. Maybe the assignment is for somebody else. And he said this, and it really got me. He said, when you walk in the assignment that God's called you to, when you're living on purpose, when you're living out God's plan, his grace is sufficient for you. His word says that. He will cover you with grace, and no matter what you need to fulfill that assignment and that race and that plan, whatever you want to call it, his grace is sufficient for you. He said, but... If you step outside of that and you try to walk in somebody else's race and you try to fulfill somebody else's responsibility and somebody else's assignment, there's not a lot of grace for that. So walk in what God's called you to walk. Don't step outside of that. What are you saying? I'm saying God has a plan for you and God has a purpose for you. And your worth isn't wrapped up in what you can achieve, but forever anchored in the fact that Jesus gave his life for you. And that he loves you and accepts you just the way you are and has an incredible plan for your life. How amazing is it that even right now in this moment, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is whispering into your ear, I love you and I'm already pleased with you just the way you are. You don't have it all together. You don't have it figured out. You've not finished it yet. You've not come to the end of the race. I just want you to know right now where you are in the journey. Like, I love you. 
I love you and I accept you the way you are. We get freaked out by posts on Instagram when they get a lot of likes, right? And we'll post something and 30 people will like it and we're like, holy cow, man, it's going viral. Look at that. Man, I put some dad jokes on Instagram. I had 200 people look at them. Holy cow, man, we're changing the world one laugh at a time, you know. We get so freaked out by stuff. Yet the God of the universe is mindful of you. The God of the universe that created you and formed you and breathed breath into your life loves you, is mindful of you, knows you personally, and created you with a plan and a purpose for your life. Not somebody else's plan, not somebody else's purpose, it's yours. Last week we talked about how important it is that we live in in unity, even as we talked about racial diversity. And, And I shared this quote with you. The people want to be uniquely seen, but treated equally. Uniquely seen, but treated equally. And and we focused on that treated equally part. We spent the majority of our time talking about that. But I want you to zero in on that first word, uniquely. You are unique. God created you unique. And what he's called you to and what he's created you for, the path that he's laid before you is different than everybody else's in the room. And he's given you the grace to complete it, to complete your assignment. So stop comparing yourself to everybody else and just be who God called you to be. So how do I do that? How do I live uniquely? Let me give you four things very quickly. I'm not gonna expound very much on any, but just write them down if you're a note taker. Here's the first one. Don't allow somebody else's opinion to determine your worth. Don't allow somebody else's opinion to determine how you view and how you see yourself, the worth that you assign to yourself. Don't let somebody else determine that for you. Can you imagine how difficult it is to live in the public eye with today's social media? I mean, how crazy is that? Like to live in the, in the public eye when everybody's got a keypad at their fingertips and ready to just share the world their thoughts about you and everybody else, right? I can't imagine what that must be like. Do you remember a couple of years ago, NC State playing Clemson at Death Valley? Do you remember that? And here we were, we were one field goal away from like one of the biggest upsets ever. Some of you are shaking your head. You've tried to suppress those memories and those thoughts. You know where I'm going with this. We were traveling. We weren't watching it. We were listening to it on the radio. We were old school. And and I'll, I'll never forget I remember them saying, he's lined up. There's the snap. And in my head, I'm thinking, this is not good. It's only a short field goal, but we aren't really good at kicking, all right? We're just, this is scary. This is bad. This is not going to end well. And sure enough, what happened? Kick went wide, right? And I remember hearing him say, he missed it. He missed the kick. And I knew in that moment we would lose that game. And and my wife just immediately began to scream and there was wailing and gnashing of teeth and tears. It was, it was like just crazy. I mean, she was, wow. I was like, wow. And, and, and all because a guy missed a kick. He missed a kick. I remember thinking, man, I sure would hate to be him. I can't imagine what people are saying to him on social media. And so I remember in the days to follow, I jumped on and I followed him on Twitter and Instagram and all these other social media outlets. It was horrible, y'all. It was horrible. 
I mean, the way that people lashed out at this guy, the way that they just just demolished him on social media was crazy. And, and this, this isn't a professional athlete. It's like a 19-year-old kid, right? 19-year-old kid. And, and all because he missed a kick. He missed a field goal. I remember one post said, please throw yourself down a flight of steps so we never have to witness you kick again. A 19-year-old kid, all because he missed a field goal. That wasn't even the worst. One person said, why don't you go ahead and slit your throat and kill yourself so we don't have to? Because he missed a kick. And I began to, I told my wife, I was like, I can't imagine what this kid, if he's reading this stuff, and you know he is, like what he must be going through. Like somebody needs to be on watch, right? This kid, wow, 19 years old. What would this do to us if we had people lashing at us because we missed a kick? I know what you're thinking. He only had one job. He missed a kick, people. He missed a kick. Don't allow their opinion to determine your worth. Here's the second thing. You gotta remember that God's word trumps their words every single time. I don't care what anybody says about you. I don't care how they reject you, how they overlook you, how they toss you aside. God's word trumps their words every single time. What are you gonna believe? You gonna believe what they say? You gonna believe what they write? You gonna believe that text they sent to you? You gonna believe what they spoke behind your back? You're going to believe what they wrote on the report about you, or are you going to believe what God's word says about you? And here's the third thing. Run the race God set before you. Run your race. Don't run my race. I'm not going to run your race. You run the race that God has set before you, and if you do, he'll give you the grace to do it. And here's the fourth one. You might not understand it right away, but I love it because I just I want to be a cheerleader for people. And it's be the loudest one in the stands. Be the loudest one in the stands. I found the greatest way to be content with the race God's called me to is to be the biggest cheerleader for those who are running the race he hasn't called me to. And so I want to cheer for people. I want to encourage. I want to cheer them on. I want to give everybody a high five. I want to encourage them and be their biggest fan as they run the race God has called them to. And when I do that, I'm content with the race God's called me to. So be the loudest one in the stands. And here's the last thing, and I'll end with this. I've lived my life with this understanding that God must prepare me before I can walk in an opportunity. And there's some of you right now that you are waiting for a door to open. You're waiting for an opportunity. And, And I've lived with the understanding that God has to prepare you for that opportunity. I'll never forget complaining to my dad. I would say, Dad, I don't understand. You know, I, I'm, I was a youth pastor and I was doing everything, man. I was doing some missions and, and I was helping with media and I would do some stuff with kids and then I'd do senior adults on Tuesday morning. You know, I'm just, I'm just doing everything. And none of my friends that did youth ministry did that. And so I'm complaining. I wanted to be a specialist and just do student ministry. And, and yet I was having to do all this other stuff. So I would go to my dad and I'd complain and, 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 and my dad being a great mentor and a great coach would always say, but son, you got to understand God's preparing you for something. All of this is training. It's not wasted opportunity. You're not wasting your time right now. Everything you do, God is preparing you for the future. And, and I remember the day that we stepped out to plan a church. 
and recognize that all of those things that we had learned were preparation to do what God had called us to in this season. And dad kind of did the, I told you so. Remember all that stuff you complained about? He was using that to train you to lead an organization. You couldn't have led in all these different areas of ministry if you hadn't walked in them and understood what needed to happen for them to be successful. It was training. Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage. Do you realize that happened in the last third of his life? What was he doing the first two-thirds of his life? He was training. God was preparing him for an opportunity. And so I've always understood that God is preparing me for an opportunity. But here's what you got to understand. And he's teaching me this now in this moment. But he also must prepare the opportunity for you. He's not just preparing you for the opportunity. But he has to prepare the opportunity for you. I mean, you may be praying, I, I, I want this relationship. I, I, I want this relationship. I want this spouse. And you may feel prepared. You may, be, you may be ready to walk into that blessing that God has for you. But the problem is, is that other person's not ready yet. That other person isn't prepared yet. And you don't want to walk into that opportunity until the opportunity is prepared. Some of you have been praying for a job, but the job may not even be created yet. So some of you are wanting fulfillment, but yet God hadn't even put the dream in your heart yet for it, right? Like there's an opportunity that he's preparing you for, but there's an opportunity he's preparing for you as well. And so maybe you're waiting, and that's one of the hardest places to be in life is when you're playing the waiting game. So what do you do when you're waiting? You just keep being faithful. You keep doing the right thing. You keep running your race and you keep walking through the doors that God opens for you. And you pray a prayer I learned to pray a long time ago. God, close doors no man can open and open doors no man can close. And he will give you grace for the journey. Would you stand with me?